1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London this week, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For most of the past century, fossil fuels defined the North Sea's economic utility. That's changing. Today, it's wind power, carbon capture, and information. That shift could reshape Europe's economy. And in much of the Middle East, finding a sex toy is difficult, but with a little ingenuity, not impossible. It's part of a quiet revolution in which the region's women are increasingly taking control of their own sexuality.
0: But first...
1: For months, the fighting in Ukraine has been concentrated in the eastern Donbass region, most recently on the city of Bakhmut. Now Russian forces have intensified their campaign, after Vladimir Putin called for a ceasefire for Orthodox Christmas — a ceasefire that his own troops violated. Officials in Ukraine say Russia is now concentrating on taking the town of Soledar, close to Bakhmut, using waves of mercenaries. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, says there are almost no walls left standing in the town.
2: нашим які наш Бахмут Дякую бійцям які витримують нові ще окупантів. Це надзвичайно важко. майже не залишилось цілих стін.
1: Amid mounting losses, the fighting around Bakhmut and Soledar in the east has become emblematic of Russia's current tactics in the war.
2: We're in a particularly bloody phase of the war, focused around the Ukrainian-held town of Bakhmut, formerly Atomovsk, which is about 70 kilometers north, east of the city of Donetsk, and one that Russia is determined to seize.
1: Oliver Carroll is covering the war in Ukraine for The Economist.
2: There are certainly hundreds of killed in action on both sides every day. And the Russian side is attacking in small strike groups, which are mostly made up of fighters from the Wagner Group, an army of mercenary soldiers, a ragtag group of released convicts, newly mobilized soldiers, all fighting under the command of Evgeny Prigozhin, an associate of Vladimir Putin since the days of St. Petersburg in the 1990s. And so what tactics are these groups using? What they're doing is they're attacking on foot in particularly risky maneuvers and with very little care for human life. I was speaking to a, a member of a Ukrainian evacuation brigade, a soldier who goes out into the field to rescue soldiers dead or alive. And he was essentially telling a, a remarkably grim picture, stepping over bodies and the stench of diesel, blood and flesh. His message was that Russia is definitely bleeding, but they're also replenishing, they're reinforcing. And in recent days, we do believe they've achieved a small breakthrough further northeast in a town called Solidar. They haven't taken the town itself completely, but it does increase the risk of encirclement of Bakhmut.
1: How serious are the Russian troop losses?
2: Obviously, the numbers of killed in action are some of the most closely held secrets in any war. But in this war, for both sides, they're particularly sensitive. And the official claims of losses on both sides are certainly some way off the truth. Um, As far as Ukraine claims go, they say they killed as much as 800 Russian troops in a single day last week. And they estimate that they've killed over 110,000 since the start of the conflict. But they also say that uh, they have lost only a tenth of the amount themselves, and obviously that's not credible. On the Russian side, they also claim similarly exaggerated tales. Uh, The defence minister, Shai Gu, talks about 100,000
1: losses. And Ali, I wonder why Russia is focusing on Bakhmut as an objective.
2: It's a good question. For three months, the Russians have valiantly attacked, then valiantly retreated, and now valiantly trying to attack once again. Uh, And in the course of that, they've lost thousands of men, not to mention the weapons and the munitions they've spent in the process. The significance of Bakhmut is very limited. Yes, there's a road network. Yes, it's a source of water, and yes, it would be a trophy, a very limited trophy after many months of fighting. But Ukraine has backup lines further west, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Where it does make sense is far away in Moscow. Bakhmut has come to be seen as a testing ground for Prigozhin, who is now building up political capital in and around the Kremlin. He's taken. Commanded that Bakhmut front, and he's using it to demonstrate a particularly bloody vision of the future. And that's in Moscow is not welcomed by everyone, and certainly not among the military and political leaders who Prigozhin himself has been criticizing.
1: So Prigozhin has taken control of the Bakhmut front. Remind us of of the group he leads. What is it, and how does it fit in with the Russian army?
2: Well, Wagner serves a function of doing the things the Russian military can't do officially. And that has included an occasion, decapitations, sledgehammer executions, you name it. They're closely aligned with the with Russian military intelligence, but there is quite a history of competition and tensions with other military sections in Ukraine, but also in Syria as well. In late autumn... Wagner found a way of cooperating with Russia's military hierarchy much more closely. And that coincided with the appointment of a new Russian operational commander, Sergei Surovikin, whose candidacy Mr. Prigozhin had lobbied for quite heavily. As far as the Ukrainian military is concerned, they started to see Wagner being supported by the regular military logistical network. They saw them fighting alongside elite units of the Russian army and strike groups. But something seemed to change recently and reverses near Bakhmut and problems with logistics do appear to have caused strains in that relationship once again. In December, Wagner released a video showing two of its fighters voicing a pretty staggering attack on the commander-in-chief of Russia's armed forces, General Valery Gerasimov, where they called him a pidr, which you might uh, translate as faggot. And that obviously made many people back in Moscow angry and alarmed. But Mr. Prigozhin chose to publicly back his men. So are you describing a split in Russia's military effort? It's too early to say that. That probably goes too far. But there are definitely completing interests that we need to follow. Russia's defense minister, Sergei shai himself a, a regular target for Wagner's criticism and radical nationalist criticism across the board, appears to be taking few chances And we know in recent weeks he sent his own mercenary grouping, a group called Patriot to fight in a different part of Donbass. But the very fact that the Ministry of Defence has a mercenary group is interesting itself. But it definitely raises questions about who controls what. President Putin has also been very clear in underlining the primacy of the regular military leadership. But changes are happening in Moscow. And if Mr. Putin at one time was seen as invulnerable, The rumors, unconfirmed at this point, that he might have cancer, but also more importantly, the doubts about his military and political judgment that have come since the start of this war, mean that's no longer the case. His officials on the main are trying to survive, but if the position on the battlefield does get significantly worse, I think we could see some of those splits becoming a little bit more obvious.
1: And what about on the Ukrainian side in Bakhmut, and more generally, how are things going for them?
2: Well, we can certainly say that Ukraine is suffering serious losses, if not quite running at the same level as Russia, it's certainly not the 10,000 or so losses they claim. On the other hand, Ukrainian military intelligence do say that they have priorities of a different type of war. They talk about smart warfare, warfare using advanced reconnaissance where they can see in real time what they're doing and the the targets they're making, uh, using high-precision weaponry and unmanned missions using drones and HIMARS and so on. HIMARS being the, the rocket systems that were provided uh, in the summer and have changed the course of this war. Mm. They claim that they are continuing to enjoy success using these very, very precise um, weapon systems, striking arms dumps, fuel dumps, and barracks. And we saw that with the New Year's Day attack on uh, a barracks in Makivka near Donetsk, which is thought to have killed over 400 people. Russia doesn't yet have that strike and reconnaissance capability. On Sunday, they claimed to have killed 600 soldiers in a revenge attack on the town of Kramatorsk. But that claim isn't backed up with evidence. In the meantime, the Western military assistance is continuing to flow. Last week, the US announced a new military aid package amounting to nearly $4 billion. It's the largest so far. Perhaps significantly, it also includes attack vehicles, armoured light tanks for the very first time. And Ukraine hopes that its bet on smart weapons and smart warfare against the sheer numbers of Russian mobilised and Russian munitions will see them through.
1: What do you think we're likely to see in terms of Russia's response to those tactics in the coming weeks?
2: Certainly, if the Ukrainians are to be believed, it will be followed up with a new wave of mobilisation perhaps in the next few days. So far, there's been no decision yet, it appears from Vladimir Putin. Unclear what to make of that at this point. He certainly delayed the announcement of the first wave of mobilisation, which would indicate perhaps serious doubts as to how the Russian population would react to a new wave. But it's sensible, I would suggest, to expect a serious new attack from Russia when the mobilised start to appear on the front lines in the coming months. And... In that respect, if Bachmoort still is standing, that will almost certainly bear the brunt of that new increase in numbers, as it already has for many months.
1: All right, Ali, Godspeed and take good care of yourself. Thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
1: For decades, the North Sea has been an area of bustling economic activity. The sea is bordered by six European countries. Belgium, Britain, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, and Norway. And it's where many important shipping routes intersect. Fishermen enjoy bumper hauls in the nutrient-rich waters, and oil and gas have proved lucrative sources of income for neighboring countries. Britain has made billions in the carbon-rich region, while Norway has converted its petrodollars into the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. But as climate change is forcing countries to rethink their fossil fuel use, new industries are emerging to take its place. Out of the roiling waves, giant new structures are rising. Ones that could shape the future of an entire continent.
4: The Sea has always been a very important economic space in Europe. There always was fishing, very fertile fishing grounds, lots of oil and gas. But it could become even more important, and that's because of wind and wind power. Ludwig
1: Siegel is our European business editor.
4: If Europe plays its cards right, I think it could become a huge opportunity for the continent to achieve its very ambitious climate goals but also to create a new global champions, which it sorely lacks. So is
1: it just because the area is so windy or are there other geographical features that make it appealing for wind farms?
4: Yeah, wind is of course the main point. There's really bad weather, lots of wind always blowing. But what also helps is that the North Sea is relatively shallow, only up to 90 meters, and I think 60 meters on average. Also, at the bottom is rather soft and not rocky, and that makes it easier to build wind turbines. You have, of course, other gusty oceans around Europe, for example, the coast of France. But the problem there is that it's much deeper, the ocean, and you almost need floating wind turbines to harvest that energy.
1: So, Ludwig, tell us about the sort of new activity we're seeing there now.
4: We see lots of wind farms being built. And to give you an idea how much so, there's about 16 gigawatts of wind turbines currently being installed. And the countries bordering the North Sea want to up that to 260 gigawatts by 2050. So it's huge. I mean, 260 gigawatts, to give you an idea, that's enough to provide plenty of electricity to all of EU's households.
1: So, Ludwig, the region holds this huge potential to be a center of renewable energy. But it's also been a key part of the oil and gas industry for decades. As this transition takes place, what will happen to all that fossil fuel infrastructure?
4: The depleted oil fields, or in particular gas fields, can be used for something else, which is called carbon capture and storage. We will need that in the future because there's industries which cannot be decarbonized. For example, cement making. You will always produce lots of carbon making cement. So that carbon dioxide can be collected and then pumped into these depleted oil fields off the coast of, for example, the Netherlands. There's one project near the port of Rotterdam where a depleted oil field is soon going to be used as a sink or a storage for carbon dioxide.
1: And beyond that, your outstanding piece mentions an industry that I would not have initially associated with the North Sea, which is information.
4: Yeah, so if you look at economic history, it's been... Mostly the case that if there's a kind of new source of energy, that attracts economic activity, that attracts industry. And so number crunching, data centers, cloud computing, all that, that uses a lot of energy. And so companies want to build their data centers increasingly where energy is cheap, but also where energy is green. And that's the case in Nordic countries. It's also that data centers need a lot of cooling. And if you build them in a region where the weather is cold, You can save a lot of money because you don't need to have cooling or air conditioning systems installed in these data centers. So the region is actually very attractive for data centers. You don't just have Amazon Web Services or Microsoft building data centers there, but also car companies that calculate their crash tests there. And if you build data centers, of course, then there is demand for data cables. So there's lots of building activity in the North Sea, pulling cables between the U.S. and Scandinavia, between the UK and Germany. So you can see it always growing every month.
1: So what you're painting for us, Ludwig, is a picture of an area where lots of different kinds of activities are increasing quite quickly. Which countries, which regions stand to benefit the most? Are there industries and companies that are moving northward from further south in Europe?
4: The way to think about it is that it's going to Pull the economic epicenter of Europe further north. So, let's say, away from the steel and iron belt between France and Germany, up north, and perhaps to a wind power and hydrogen belt. And I said earlier that these energy basins attract industry. And you can already see that even steel companies are thinking about moving parts of the steel production closer to the North Sea. So, there's this one company in Sweden, H2 Green Steel a startup, and they're building a new steelworks. And instead of coal and gas to make steels, they're using hydrogen, which they produce using renewable energy. They can do this because the renewable energy up in northern Sweden and near the Arctic Circle is very cheap. And then they can either export the steel to car makers in Europe, or they can export intermediate products, which have already taken in a lot of energy, meaning the hydrogen. And so what you see is kind of like that industry may split in two. The energy intensive parts will move north. And the more, let's say, human or knowledge-intensive parts of the steelmaking may remain where they are.
1: And what about competition? I imagine there are other parts of Europe vying for similar industries. Do they lose? Do they compete? What does it look like?
4: They certainly compete. Uh, Spain and Portugal, they have lots of solar power, but also wind power. So they compete to some extent with the North Sea. But there are other regions in the world where renewable energy is much cheaper, in the Middle East, in Australia, and in South America. So there's a competition going on. And I think Europe does have an edge here, but it needs to run fast to keep it. And of course, there's another concern, and this is the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., which brings a lot of subsidies and protectionist measures to get investments in renewable energy in the U.S., and that may pull investment from areas like the North Sea to the United States. So what you're describing is a
1: tremendous amount of economic activity and possibly a shift, as you said, in Europe's economic center up north. How does that affect the continent geopolitically?
4: If the economic epicenter of Europe moves north, so will the political one. And you could imagine that the countries around the North Sea will cooperate more closely. That includes Norway and the UK. And so they could perhaps create their own little club and that could compete with the European Union. But also within countries, you could have interesting shifts. So Bavaria is one of the richest lender or states in Germany. Bremen, which is bordering the North Sea, is one of the poorest. So if the North Sea becomes more important economically, so will probably be Bremen and Bavaria may lose relative power. The North Sea is really a huge opportunity for Europe to achieve a couple of very important goals. One is to move away from fossil fuels, of course. But the other thing is to become more independent when it comes to energy, no longer being dependent on gas from Russia, for instance. And it's economically a very important opportunity because perhaps out of that North Sea can grow global champions Europe does not have at this point. It's a huge opportunity, and I think Europe should to everything in its power to speed up the development of that economic region.
1: All right, Ludwig, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, John. And for more on how the North Sea region could reshape Europe's economy, listen to our sister podcast on business, finance and markets, Money Talks. You can find it wherever fine podcasts are brought in from the wind and the cold. Officially, sex toys are banned in the United Arab Emirates. Unofficially, well, that's a different story. It was only last year that the UAE decriminalized premarital sex. But for those looking for a little self-release, it can be difficult to find a sex toy in the country, let alone to try to bring one in from abroad.
3: Every year, customs officers from Tunis to Tehran confiscate dildos and vibrators and fluffy handcuffs.
1: Nicholas Pelham is a Middle East correspondent for The Economist.
3: Most people, when they're caught, just get off with a warning. Although in the United Arab Emirates, under Article 358 of the country's indecency law, people who are caught can be fined up to 50,000 dirhams, which is $13,000 or so, and they can even face imprisonment if they're caught more than once.
1: Why are the rules so strict about sex toys?
3: Bans for what they call obscene material and objects prevail across the Middle East. Religious preachers reinforce stigmas of shame. And the Shia world's leading ayatollahs, for instance, the likes of Ali Khamenei of Iran and Ali Sistani in Najaf in Iraq, have both issued fatwas prohibiting sex toys. Sunni scholars also kind of formulate against artificial insertions and sinful accessories for masturbation. These old patriarchies are coming under mounting challenges because in part, an increasing number of expats who are living in the Gulf in traditionally quite conservative areas and they're bringing their mores with them. And then you've also got a female population which is increasingly educated and they're increasingly questioning the male controls over their sexuality.
1: So the ban on sex toys hasn't completely stopped people from using them.
3: (laughs) I mean, shock horror. (laughs) Masturbation in the Middle East, as elsewhere, still exists. And so to compensate for these supply shortages, quite a few people are now adopting a hands-on approach and they're fashioning sex toys of their own. So I spoke to several people in Dubai. One was an artist who's been working on a a research project looking at the sex toys that people are using in Dubai. I also spoke to a Finnish uh, expat who lives there who works as a sexologist and the sort of tools that you hear people using are a carrot or a bitter lemon with a ribbed skin. They said that shampoo bottles are being used and even some are kind of quite inventive. One was a Pringle box, which had been stuffed with sponges and a glove to replicate a vagina. Not all of them, of course, are safe. And there are these kind of horror stories that sometimes surface. In one Iranian newspaper, there are reports that hospitals had had to extract plastic water bottles and spray cans. There was even a report of a 100-watt light bulb that had got stuck But of course, there is all this uh, this sort of black market, this underground network where it is possible to acquire actual sex toys in much of the Middle East. And despite the ban, if you're really searching, you can pretty much buy what you want. And how does one do that? So some lingerie stores in Dubai's miles uh, double as under-the-counter sex shops. There are online retailers like Noon in the United Arab Emirates, they offer discreet lines in what they call wellness enhancements. They advertise vibrators as electric face massages, and dildos and masquerades waterproof and washable back massages. There are even some who are supplying from overseas. I went to Coco de Mer, which is a sort of upmarket sex shop in London, and they told me that many of their clients from the Middle East opt for a product called the Intimate Wand, which looked to me a bit like a neck rub. So that was one way in which they could try and get it past customs. So does this suggest that attitudes perhaps could change or are changing? I think it does. Increasingly, you're hearing of preachers who seem to be opting for a sort of more liberal interpretation and going with the flow. And that there are many Muslim clerics who insist that Islam has always encouraged sex for pleasure and not just for procreation, which is different perhaps from traditional Christianity. Uh, Sheikh Fadlallah is an influential Shia Lebanese cleric who's often adopted positions which are at odds with those of the traditionalists. He, for instance, disputes that female masturbation is haram or sinful because no semen is spilled. And he's even adopted a more liberal line on sex toys. He says that they can be a legitimate substitute if the husband is absent or unable to satisfy his wife. And then you have a swathe of new platforms which have been launched by women across the Middle East who are bent on seeking to end male control over their bodies. You find them in Lebanon, you find them in Egypt, and they're really acquiring quite large followings. They post videos to fill the sex education gap that's lacking in schools. And they normalize words um, which have hitherto been taboo, like that for clitoris, which is buzzer in Arabic or chuchule in Farsi. And if all else fails, one website cancels. They're rather obvious. If you can't find a sex toy, then use your fingers. As they put it, they're free and they aren't banned. All right, Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. John, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure.